Matthew chapter 16, as we continue, this is the second sermon in a series of sermons on the doctrine of the church, formerly known as ecclesiology. But the first place that they find the word church in the New Testament is in Matthew chapter 16, which we're going to look at. And we're going to be going a lot of different places, so I hope that you're ready to turn But Matthew 16, we'll begin in verse 13, and then we will pray together. Now, when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? They said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter, always a spokesman, (laughs) replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. What a profound statement. (laughs) What does he mean by that? Let's pray together. Amen. Amen. And so that's a brief statement of what we looked at last week. Now, this morning, we're going to talk about, as you see, the idea and nature of the church. So we're going to be asking the question, what is the church? What is the nature of the church? Okay. So as I mentioned, Matthew 16 contains the first time the word church is used in the New Testament. And it's only used one other time, and that is in the book of Matthew, again, chapter 18, from the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we know it's used elsewhere in the New Testament. But by Jesus himself, Matthew 16 and Matthew 18. Turn over there to Matthew 18 and verse 15, and we'll look at it again. Now, I'm probably going to come back to these two texts, if you're wondering. Probably going to come back to these two texts later to do an expositional sermon. And unpack the riches of these two passages. But I'm simply pointing out from this passage. These two. That Jesus is the one who came up with the idea of the church. The idea of the church is Jesus' idea. And he establishes its nature throughout his teaching and the teaching of his uh, appointed apostles. So in Matthew 18 we find the other time Jesus uses the word. Beginning in verse 15. And this is in the context of, say, controversy in the church. Say you have a difficulty with a brother or a sister (laughs) in the church. This is one of the most neglected things in all of the Bible. I've been in in the ministry a a while now, and I don't know why I laugh. It's really not that funny, but, but people just... Forget about this passage. They just totally bypass it and go straight to the criticizing and slander and gossip and all this. But this is what you're supposed to do. 
If your brother sins against you, go and tell his fault, tell him his fault, <laughs> not your neighbor or everybody else in the church. Between you and him, how? Alone. So if you come to my office this year sometime and you say, Pastor, I want to talk to you about so-and-so. What am I going to say to you? Have you talked to them? You and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. And no further hurt comes to the church. See how sweet that is? Nobody gets hurt. You and him, work it out. It's done. No further hurt. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you. Why? So that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. There is wisdom in a multitude of counselors, is there not? So if you're having difficulty, just the two of you, bring a couple more, three along, so that they can hear and they can use the wisdom of God uh, and the discernment that God gives them through the Scriptures. If... He refuses to listen to them. Tell it to who? The church. Isn't that interesting? Now, as we go along, I'm going to mention some of the other governance structures. And that's a sermon. We're going to get to it. It's going to be a while. When we talk about governance structure, there's all these different platforms. There's the Baptistic structure, there's the Presbyterian structure, the Episcopalian uh, structure, the Catholic structure, if you want to include them. Um, but here we see, and I want to go ahead and plant this seed of this kind of terminology. This is the terminology. The final court of appeals is the church. It's not a, a group uh, or a, a pope or... Um, uh, a council, but the church, the gathered local church is the final court of appeals. If they won't listen and they won't repent of sin, then tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector, an unbeliever, a non Christian. Have you ever witnessed that? You ever felt like you might should? <laughs> Very seldom will you see it today. And that's because the church has lost her biblical vision. And in place of it, we have a program to perform, an event to attend, rather than be a people. Who are fulfilling the great commission of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we'll get to that later. This is the second time we see it. And notice the similar language in verse 18 and following. Truly I say to you. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Where did we read that? Two chapters before in chapter 16. The first time you find the word church. He says the very same thing. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. It is the established teaching of Jesus Christ that he so intimately identifies himself with his church 
that, listen, when they act, he acts. When they act, not individuals, the church. When the church acts, Jesus acts. That is absolutely astonishing to me. It gives, listen, a weightiness and gravity and soberness and humility, doesn't it? To what it means to be a part of the church. That your corporate congregational activity is the activity of Jesus Christ. The authority to act on behalf of what Jesus has taught is the authority of the church to bind and loose. This is a remarkable thing. And we need to understand what that means. But that is another sermon. This is the idea and the nature of the church. And so from these two passages, we see the two times in the New Testament where Jesus himself uses the term that's translated in English, church. The idea of the church, as we heard last week, is not an accident of history. But rather it is at the very center and the heart of the eternal creator, God. It is his idea. It is his purpose and plan. And listen, he has no plan B. The church is his idea. It is his purpose and his plan. Very often people say that I, I'll take Jesus, but I don't want the church. Well, you can't have him that way. You can't have him that way. Because Jesus so closely identifies himself with his church. And to be in love with him is to be in love with the brothers and sisters who make up the bride of Christ, the church. It's his plan. It's his idea. And it's his purpose. As we mentioned last week, it may not be essential for you to understand the doctrine of the church in order to be saved. But it is essential and critical for you to understand the doctrine of the church for you to be obedient. In order for you to be able to say at the end of the day when you lay your head on your pillow at night. When you stand before Jesus and you will one day at the judgment seat of Christ. That you have by and large and in general with all your stumbling and fumbling. You have sought to be faithful and obedient to the teachings and the leadership of Jesus Christ. As he's revealed himself in the scriptures. And therefore you have been submissive to his teaching on the idea of the church. If it is his plan, idea, and purpose, then there's no way that a person can claim submission to Jesus without living out his teaching concerning the church. It is important for obedience. Therefore, the doctrine of the church is of utmost importance and significance for every Christian generation. And the problem often is that it's neglected. To quote, as I did last week, it's kind of like a wreath on hanging on the outside of a, door, of, of a home. The wreath hanging on the door, it may be pretty, it may not be pretty, but ultimately it means nothing because it bears no weight. 
That is often the kind of attitude that people have toward the doctrine of the church. It doesn't really matter, does it? And I gave you all of those quotes last week and heard from all of those eight reasons biblically why, yes, in fact, it is important. And so today we want to think about the idea and the nature of it. So the idea comes from Jesus Christ, comes from our infinite God. The triune God has a plan of redeeming a portion of humanity for himself, for his glory, to lavish upon them his grace, mercy, love, and presence forever and forever. And that plan and that purpose is carried on through the church. Now, Turn the corner a little bit. If you take, if you like to take notes, let me just give you a couple headings. I'll point them out as we get to them. Here's one of them. Old, the Old Testament people of God. Let, let's turn the corner and think for a moment about the Old Testament people of God. Without understanding this, we don't get a full-orbed understanding of the New Testament church or the New Covenant people of God. So, the Old Testament people of God. Edmund Clowney writes, quote, The story of the church begins with Israel, the Old Testament people of God. And we want to see, I've got a whole sermon dedicated to that concept. It's called, big, big title here, The Church and Israel. Because we need to understand how they, re- how they relate. And I'm not going to dive into it deep. We're just going to barely dive into it in the Old Testament. To see a few things about the Old Testament people of God. And the, and the continuity and the, the things that transcend over into the new covenant people of God in the New Testament. And so one other writer says, quote, The shape of the visible church today bears clear continuity, though not identity. There's a key phrase. So I'll read it again. The shape of the visible church today bears a clear continuity, though not identity, with the visible people of God in the Old Testament. And so what we learn in the Old Testament will be significant for our understanding of the New Testament covenant people. Another one writes, God's eternal plan has always been to display His glory, not just through individuals, but through a corporate body. I, I wish you would write that down. This is what I want to say so, so loudly, so often to the modern day American evangelical. I'll say it again. God's eternal plan has always been to display his glory, not just through individuals. Yes, through individuals, but not just through individuals, but through a corporate body. In other words, what I'm saying, the Old Testament and the New Testament, for that matter, reveals that the way God displays his glory to the angels and demons, to the onlooking world, is not just through individual Christians, but through the corporate life of the body of Christ, the church. That's very significant. And this changes, <laughs> this changes the whole dynamic of coming to church. You know, you don't just come to church, sit down, listen, go home, and live totally separate and distinct from the from the concept of the body, life of the church, until you get back next week to sit and listen again. That is an Americanized form of Christianity, which is not true Christianity. Let me give you some examples. In creation, God created not one person, but two. 
And the two of them, he gave them the ability to do what? He said to them, be fruitful and multiply. I want you to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with little worshipers of me. To teach them and bring them up to fear God and to love God and to glorify God and enjoy the glory of God. In the flood, God saved not one person, but several families that he saved and lavished his grace upon in the Old Testament when he spared Noah and his sons and his sons' wives and Noah's wife. In Genesis 12, God called Abraham and promised that Abraham's descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky or the sand on the seashore. He says, you're going to be the father of many nations. In Exodus, God dealt not only with Moses, but with the nation of Israel as a whole. In Exodus... We find that truth. The 12 tribes comprised of hundreds of thousands of individual people, yet bearing one corporate identity. This is so significant. So one of the things right there we could stop along the way and see that transcends the Old Testament and the New Testament is that you have this diversity of individual people, thousands of them in, um, that made up the 12 tribes of the people of Israel, and they were diverse Some of them were from different tribes. I'm from Benjamin. You're from Judah. Okay. We're different. It's a different tribe. It's a different father at the head of that lineage. But one corporate identity. What is it? Israel. The covenant people of God. He gave laws and ceremonies that are to be worked out. Not only in the lives of individuals. It's not just about you obeying the commands that God gives specifically to you. And what you do in your life, but many, many, many of the laws that God gave to his people in the Old Testament were to be worked out among the body life, among the people. Much of the law that God gave to his people Israel dealt with how they should live together in this diversity and yet unity for his glory and for his honor. In the Old Testament, Israel is called God's son in Exodus chapter 4, verse 22. In the Old Testament, in Ezekiel chapter 16, Israel is called his spouse. See if there's some continuity there, is it? In, in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 10, Israel is called the apple of his eye. You ever heard that phrase, the apple of my eye? It's in the Old Testament. The people of God were called the apple of his eye. In Isaiah chapter 5 and also Nahum chapter 2, we find Israel is called his vine. His vine. And in Ezekiel chapter 34, Israel is called his flock. His flock. And so we can clearly see the foreshadowing of the new covenant people of God, even in those names given to the people of God. In the Old Testament. The New Testament is certainly in the New Testament. The bride of Christ. His spouse. Is the church. In the New Testament clearly. Jesus says I am the good shepherd. Who lays down his life for his sheep. And so we can clearly see the foreshadowing. Of the work of Jesus Christ. And his church. 
Now, not only do we see it in those types and foreshadowings of the names, and we see it in the, in the reality of how God has always revealed himself and dealt with people in their corporate identity. He changed Jacob's name to Israel, dealing with them as a whole. Not only through that can we see and learn some things, but also through the words themselves that are used, the specific words. For example, there's a clear connection to the Old Testament um, word for assembly. Remember that word. So say that in your mind, that word, assembly. So don't, don't forget that. And it's the word in the Hebrew is the word kahal. And it means assembly. Kahal or kahal. It means assembly. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word, kahal. The New Testament word translated church, okay, is the word ekklesia. So you want to remember that word. You can say it. You can remember it. The word ekklesia. Ecclesia, ecclesiology. Why? The doctrine of the church. This word. Now, there's clear connection between these two words because the word ecclesia means, guess what? In Greek, assembly. Assembly. So the Greek word, <coughs> excuse me, ecclesia, meaning assembly, the Hebrew word kaal, Assembly, there's a clear connection between these two because it is the word ecclesia in Greek that is translated in your English Bible, the word church. Church. For example, let me give you another example. The Greek version of the Old Testament is called the Septuagint. Many of you have heard of that. So it's the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible in the Old Testament. That word that I mentioned there, that Hebrew word, kaal, in Deuteronomy 4.10, for example, and elsewhere, is translated as it goes from Hebrew to Greek, Old Testament now. So you want to translate the Hebrew into the Greek language. What word will you pick for this Hebrew word? It's translated in the Greek. Ecclesia. There's a clear connection between the word for assembly there as it is used. Now this word in the Hebrew has a connotation of being, listen, the people of God. The people of God. That word, ka'al, is the Lord's distinct people. And so this connection is clear to me that you have the Old Testament people of God using that Hebrew word, which if you're going to translate it into Greek, is the word ekklesia, which in the New Testament, when you want to think about the assembly, the church, you use the word ekklesia. And so the church is an assembly. <laughs> What does that do for you? The church is an assembly. <laughs> one, of the, one of the huge things that's happening as a trend for the last few decades is a decline in people who gather on Sunday mornings as the church. 
(laughs) But if we understand that the word church in the New Testament is the word for assembly, (laughs) then you can clearly see why the writer of the book of Hebrews in chapter 10 verse 25 would say, do not what? Forsake the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is. Well, I can watch it on the internet. The word assembly. It is an assembly. It's more than that. But let's start with that. Let's start with that. It is an assembly. It is God's assembled people. Why? Because God dwells with the church. The church is comprised of the people who who are beginning to know the reversal of the fall that happened with Adam and Eve in the garden. And so when Adam sinned against God and Eve, the human race fell into the curse that comes along with sin. Death, disease, famine, uh, tragedies, wars, wickedness of all types then sprang up. Within the heart of the human race and has been that case ever since. And it is the people of God that are seeing and experiencing the freedom and the reversal of that fall. This is a huge concept of the church. So members both of Israel and the church receive a glimpse of the glory that awaits the people of God in the future. One writer says, heaven becomes visible on earth in God's assembly, the church. So important. I would write that down. Heaven becomes visible on the earth through and in God's assembly, the church. What is the new heaven and the new earth going to be like? You should be able to look into the life of the church and see it. My friend, does that seem a little more weighty? A little more significant than just coming once a week to hear something, to watch something. Oh, my friends, it is much more than that. Heaven itself becomes visible in the people of God, the assembly of God. Now, the connection point and the interpretive key between the Old Testament people of God and the New Testament people of God is Jesus Christ himself. The interpretive key and the connection point in its focus is Jesus Christ himself. And I'll talk about that probably next week a little bit longer. So even though Israel and the church are not identical, they are closely related. And they are related through Jesus Christ. And so at the very least, we must say that God has consistently had a plan to glorify his name through groups of people that he chose out of the world And has took unto himself as his own people. His own people. All right. Let's turn the corner. Observation number two. Point number two. We talked about the Old Testament people of God. Let's think about the New Testament people of God. And I want to go back to this word church for just a moment. The word church comes from the Anglo-Saxon word. Kirke. It's an Anglo-Saxon word, the word church is, which in turn has a deeper root from the Greek word, kyriakon, which means belonging to the Lord. So that Anglo-Saxon word, which gets, which is derived from that Greek word, the word church, 
means belonging to the Lord. Like today is called the what? The Lord's day. The Lord's people belonging to the Lord. So this word, now what I'm talking about is the word church now. The word church, that's what it means. Belonging, it comes from that idea of belonging to the Lord. And in the English New Testament, the word church, you already know, was translated from the Greek word ekklesia, meaning, you tell me. Ekklesia means what? Assembly. That's why, I, that's why I'm repeating it, so that you'll, that you'll get it. Ekklesia means assembly. And when you take that Anglo-Saxon word that, that means belongs to the Lord, that's the word church, okay? When you take that word and you are doing translation from Greek and you read the word in the Greek, assembly, ekklesia, they chose to use the English word church. So, congregation, never a building. Never. Never in the New Testament does the word church refer to a building. It always refers to an assembly. So the word ecclesia means assembly. It's also used to describe assemblies other than Christian gatherings. So it's a Greek word. It was used to describe other different situations or assemblies or gatherings of people. For example, even in the Bible, we see examples of this in Acts chapter 7. In verse 38, Acts chapter 7 and verse 38 and also Hebrews chapter 2 verse 12, the word ecclesia is used to describe Old Testament assemblies. <laughs> in Acts chapter 19 and verse 32, Acts chapter 19 verse 32, verse 39, verse 41, the word ecclesia is used there three times to describe the riot of, ga- of the gathered people in Ephesus because of Paul. Paul is in the city of Ephesus. He's preaching the gospel. The people get really, really mad. And all the people do what? What do they do? They gather together. They congregate. They assemble themselves together. And they are going to deal with this man, Paul, and his preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what word do they use in the Greek to talk about this gathering? The word ecclesia. However, and this is remarkable to me. However, with those few mentioned... 109 uses of the word ecclesia in the New Testament are a reference to Christian assembly. 109 uses of the 114 uses of the word ecclesia refer to a Christian assembly. Therefore, summary statement here. The church is the called out assembly of people who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ through his substitutionary sacrifice. I'm going to say that again. The church is not a building. It's not a denomination. It is is none of that. The church, according to what we're learning so far, the church is the called out assembly group of people who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ through his substitutionary sacrifice for them on the cross. 
That's what it means to be a part of the church. You've been called out of the world. You've been called out of darkness. You've been called out of the kingdom of Satan. You've been called out of the fields of sin. You've been called out and set aside. You've been called out and separated. And now you're a part of the group, the assembly, the gathering, the congregation of the people who belong to Jesus Christ. Because he purchased you with his blood. It is a purchased reality. He died to purchase them from the slavery, from their slavery to sin and deliver them from the wrath of God and bring them into an eternal love relationship with God. Acts chapter 20 and verse 28. I want you to turn to that one if you would please. Acts chapter 20 verse 28. It is so profound in my hearing and I trust it will be for you as well. Why is the church important? Can we get an understanding for the definition that I've given here? Because so far that last part of that definition, I haven't given you any scriptural warrant for it, have I? I just said in my definition as we develop it that it is the called out assembly. We've learned that through the very word itself and what the word ecclesia means. Of those who belong to the Lord because that's exactly what the Anglo-Saxon word means. It's derived from the Greek word that we talked about. Who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm saying through the substitutionary sacrifice that it is a purchased reality. Listen to Acts chapter 20 and verse 20. Eight. Pay careful attention. This is Paul talking to the elders, the pastors of the church in Ephesus. They have been called, summoned to him, and he's giving them a parting word. And he says this. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock In which the Holy Spirit has made you an overseer. To care for. So what is this flock? What is this flock? He tells us. To care for the church of God. The church of God. Which he obtained with his own blood. Jesus demonstrates his love for his called out people by sacrificing his life's blood to purchase them. Another beautiful picture of the scripture is Revelation chapter 5 and verse 9. In Revelation 5 and verse 9, we find this scene in the, in, in the future of heaven that has all of these redeemed people that have been called out of the world. And listen to what it says. Revelation 5, 9. It's so beautiful. And they, this group, sang a new song. And they all, they sang a new song saying... Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were what slain and by your what blood you have ransomed and the word ransom simply means purchased back 
people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. What a beautiful scene. One day, all of the peoples of the world that have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb will be singing a song to Christ, the one who died to purchase them. So, what have we looked at so far? The Old Testament people of God, assembly. The New Testament people of God, ecclesia, assembly. Now, let let me turn another corner. And I want you to think with me about four ways in which the word church is used. This will be brief, but it's, I think, significant. Four ways in which the word, I'm talking about the English translation of that Greek word, ecclesia, and it's used in the New Testament. Number one, it's used to represent the universal church of all believers of all time. So there's two primary ways in which we think about the church. The church universal and the church local. The church universal and the church local. And so the first of four ways in which we find this word church being used is to talk about and to describe the universal church of all believers of all time. Now, let me give you a text. In the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. The book of Ephesians Chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, you find these words. And he put all things under his feet, that is Jesus, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who feels all in all. He's talking about, listen, what is he talking about? He's talking about the blood-bought, spirit-indwelt, believers of all time and of all places the universal church he's not talking there in ephesians chapter 1 in those verses 22 and 23 about a particular local church he's talking about how he has put jesus as the head of the entire church which is made up of the called out people who belong to the lord jesus christ through his substitutionary sacrifice To purchase them. Okay? Universal church. There are saints in heaven today. In the presence of the Lord. There are saints yet to be born. God knows who who they all are. He knows every one of them. And so you have the universal church. But. It's not the only way that the church. The word church is used. And let me ask you a question. How do you get stuff done in the universal church? <laughs> you know, all of the one another passages that you, you and I are called to obey. How do you obey them in terms of the universal church? You can't. Because the universal church, there's saints in heaven. They're part of that universal church. They're in the presence of the Lord. They've gone on. There's saints yet to be born. They're a part of the universal church. They will be. No, there has to be a concrete place where stuff happens. Where obedience to the scripture happens. Where is that? The church local. The local church. So, we'll come to that in a minute. I should have put that as number two, but I didn't. So, the universal church, all believers in all time. Number two, 
the way the word church is used, all believers in an area. Okay, all believers in an area. If you look in the book of Acts chapter 9, verse 31. The book of Acts chapter 9 and verse 31. If you're tired of turning for a moment, just write that down. You can look it up when you go home. How does the New Testament use the word church? Number one, for the universal church, all believers of all time. Second way, all the believers of an area, of an area. So, Acts chapter 9, verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So there he uses the same word, ecclesia, the word assembly, to describe all believers in an area. So all of the church, not churches, all of the church uh, in Princeton, for example. The Bible does use it in that term. And it's led some scholars to believe that there should be some kind of formal expression of the church in every city in the world. So you'd have an official church of Princeton. They make a case for that. I don't think that it's necessary to make that conclusion, but some do based on those texts. Number three way that it's used. All the believers in a city. I just mentioned that. All the believers in a city. Acts chapter 8 verse 1. Acts chapter 8 and verse 1. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church. There it is. Ecclesia. In where? In Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. So the first one was more of a broad area. Judea, Samaria. That encompasses more than one city. The word church is used. And this third way is in a specific city. And in this case, the church in Jerusalem. Number four. The believers gathered in house congregations. So he uses the word church in the New Testament to describe those believers, those called out assembly who gathers in various houses and the congregations that they represent. Let me give you an example. 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 19. 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 19. Quote, the churches of Asia, so the churches of Asia, send you greetings, Aquila and Prisca, together, so this is a couple, together with the church, with the ecclesia, the assembly, in their house. In their house. Send you hearty greetings in the Lord. So you have these four ways in which the word church is used to describe universal church. All the believers in an area. All the believers in a city. Believers gathered in a house congregation. Number four, the analogies that reveal the nature. The analogies that reveal the nature. There's, there's, there's dozens of them in the New Testament, but there are five major analogies used in the New Testament. So what am I saying here? Analogies that reveal the nature. What's the title of the sermon? The idea and the nature of the church. In order to understand the essence and the nature of the church, these analogies reveal the nature. Five of them. Number one, the first analogy is that of the bride of Christ talked about that already no need to linger so one of the analogies that helps you to understand what it is to be a part of the church is to understand this analogy 
The church is the bride of Christ. The bride of Christ. So when Adam uh, was presented a wife, she was drawn from him. He, he, he was put to sleep and there was a surgery that happened. He took, God took a rib from Adam and created the woman and Adam named her Eve. The new covenant people of God, Jesus Christ, God the Son, purchased his bride by his death on the cross. He gave his life's blood to purchase his bride, which he says in Matthew 16, I will build my what? Church. You find this analogy in Ephesians 5, 25 to 30. You can read that when you go home. The bride of Christ, the love that Jesus has for the church is the, to, is the kind of love that is expressed by a good and godly husband for his wife. Would you describe that as an intimate love? A personal love? A powerful love? A self-sacrificing love? The Bible describes it that way. Would you describe it as a love that he has for no other woman on the planet? I love all of the people in this room, men and women, but I love my wife in a different, distinct way than I do every other woman in this room. There is an intimacy, there is a special, powerful love that God has, that Christ has for the church, and that is expressed in the analogy of the bride of Christ. Let me just read you a snippet of Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So that he might present the church... To himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. This is Christ and his church. So most of you ladies that were, uh, that are married, you had a church wedding, you walked the aisle and you were wearing this white gown. And you did all that you could do. To beautify yourself. And you were presented to the bridegroom. What's the picture of Christ and his church? Second analogy that reveals the nature is the body of Christ. The body of Christ. Let's think about it universal for just a moment. The body of Christ universal. The book of Colossians chapter 1 verses 18 to 24. The book of Colossians chapter 1 verses 18 to 24. And he is the head of the body. The body. What is the body? He tells us. And he is the head. Christ is the head of the body. The church. So here's an analogy that reveals the nature of the church. The nature of the church is the church is like a bride. That is in love with her husband. Not someone who comes and sits and watches a program. It's a bride who loves her husband. And her husband loves her. What is the essence and the nature of the church? It's like a body. 
a body. Listen to this. He is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, the church at Colossia, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, has he now reconciled in his body in his body of flesh by his death in order, listen to this, does this sound similar? In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Sounds just like the bride, right? Verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, the church at Colossia, and in my flesh, this is Paul, in my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. What do you mean? For the Flesh and bones of Jesus of Nazareth? No. I am feeling of what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, his sufferings, for the sake of his body, that is the church. How do you understand the nature of the church? You must think of it as being a part, listen, of Christ himself. There is a spiritual union into which a person comes as a part of the body of Christ, the church, the bride of Christ, in which you are brought into a spiritual communion and unity with Christ himself. My body, you are a part of me. It's a little more than coming And sitting and watching a program. Now, that's universal. Talking about the church. Now, let's think number three. So, number one, the bride. Number two, the body of Christ universal. Number three, the body of Christ local. Most of the uses in the New Testament refer to local churches. Most of them. I'm just going to give you one. One scholar notes that, quote, when, when he speaks of ecclesia, Paul normally thinks first of the concrete assembly of those who have been baptized at a specific place. Ecclesiological statements that lead beyond the level of the local assembly are rare in Paul's letters. Which means that in the heart of God, who inspired the Spirit, who inspired the Apostle Paul to write the 13 letters of the New Testament that he wrote, the overwhelming thrust using the word ecclesia is to talk about a specific local congregation. I'm going to give you one example. 1 Corinthians 12, 21 to 27. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he talks about the body of Christ in a localized expression. Listen to what he says. Quote, the eye cannot say to the hand, you've all heard this, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet. I have no need of you. By the way, I find that so remarkable that the head in this analogy is not Christ. Did you see that when I read it? The head in this analogy is not Christ. It's another member of the church. It's another part It's part of the church. Listen to it again. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't have no need of you. I don't need you, hand. 
nor again the head to the feet. Now, if that was Christ, he couldn't say that because Christ has no need of any of us. But here in this analogy, the body of Christ, he says, the head can't say, I don't need you feet. I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. (laughs) And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our own presentable parts are treated with greater modesty. In other words, you wear shoes on your feet because your feet are ugly. No, yours might be pretty, mine are not. So, but that's what he's talking about. The, you know, some of the parts of the body are not, are not all equal in function and presentable to us. He says, but listen, but they're all equal in what? Importance. He says, the unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to that part that lacked, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. This whole idea of so many churches splitting over competitions is unheard of in the New Testament. Verse 27, we read all of that to get to verse 27. Look at it. Now, you. Who is the you? Who is he writing to? Where are we reading from? First Corinthians. So the you is the Corinthian church, right? You. I'm writing to the church that has established the city of Corinth. And he gets to verse 27. He says, oh, I'm talking about all this body. And he says, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. So you have the body of Christ universal made up of all believers. Those in heaven, those yet to be, those present. Then you have the most used uh, way in analogy is the body of Christ, local expression of that universal church. Number four, the household and dwelling of God. The household and dwelling of God. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. The household and dwelling of God is an analogy that helps to reveal the nature of the church. The household or the dwelling of God. What does it mean to be a part of the church? To be a part of the church, both in its universal and local expressions, is to be the bride who loves her husband. Is to be the body that works together only when all of the parts are functioning as they should. And, I'm saying here, fourthly, as the household or the dwelling place of God. Look at Ephesians 2.19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. Who's he writing to? The church at Ephesus. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You now are a member of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ himself being the cornerstone. In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a, listen, holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together, together, together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. What does that mean? That means that there, according to the New Testament, there is a way 
in which the Holy Spirit of God, Almighty, Eternal God, manifests Himself in the congregation that He does in no other way on earth. See that? He's talking about the group being built and placed together as God designs it. And what God is building is a place for His Spirit to dwell and be manifested. The assembly is the dwelling place of God. Not only does God indwell every single blood-bought, born-again believer, and there's a manifestation of the reality of that experience in the individual Christian's life, but the Bible is clearly teaching us that there is a way in which God manifests Himself in the assembled church that He does in no other place and in no other way. Number five. Number five, the pillar and support of the truth. This is an analogy that reveals the nature. First Timothy three fourteen and 15. We read this last Sunday to get us started. I simply read it again. The pillar and the support of the truth. What is the nature of the church? It's like a pillar. It's like a bulwark. It's like a, a pillar that is set underneath the, the truth to hold it up and to support it. Is there significance in being a part of that group? You bet there is. I hope to come to you as soon. I'm writing these things. This is Paul writing to Timothy. But I'm writing these things so that, so that you, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the, and here he uses this household uh, analogy as well, household of God. And then he says, which is the church of the living God. And then he says this, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So, the way that we have been entrusted with the truth of God as He's revealed Himself in the Scripture is ours to uphold for future generations. And if we do a poor job at it, the truth can suffer. And generations of people will suffer as a result of the unhealthy condition of the church. Number, I said I had five. I have one final one. Number six, the new creation of God. The new creation of God. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.17. I promise you this is the last one. The new creation of God is another analogy that helps us to understand the nature of the church. This is so important I'll probably mention it again because I'm not going to be able to do it justice for the sake of time. But let's read this. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Salvation is not walking an aisle, filling out a card. It's not. Salvation is not the experience of the water. Salvation is an experience of the grace and the power of Almighty God through the proclamation of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit to the degree that the outcome of that work is what? A brand new creation. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all is from God, who through Christ reconciled. Notice this word. What is it? Us. Notice how many times from here on out you find the word us and we, which means more than one, right? We're talking about the church, the assembly. 
He talks about this individual who has been radically transformed into a new creation of God. And then he begins to talk in terms of the, of, uh, of, of this group, he says. Reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of, the, of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And I'm going to say more about that. The analogy that I want to leave you with, this final one, is the fact that the church is understood as being the new creation of God. The reverse of the fall into sin is pictured and made visible through the church. The church. And we want to find out how in further messages. So let's summarize and close. Here's, here's my long uh, definition. If you want it, I'll give it to you later. The church is the called out assembly of people who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ through his substitutionary sacrifice. Nothing different there than what I've said earlier. Whereby they are brought into an eternal love relationship with God. In which God's glory is displayed and praised. And the effects of the fall into sin are reversed as God makes a new creation through Christ. In which the people of God increasingly submit to the rule of God. So the church is to be... The visible expression of the gospel, and listen to this, the kingdom of God on earth. And the way in which that is lived out and expressed cannot be done so without the congregation, the assembly, the group life, the body life, the life of a flock of sheep, the life of a building that has individual bricks that make the habitation for the Spirit of God and individuals who make up the beloved bride of Jesus Christ. So the identity, I mean the idea of the church is whose idea? The church is God's idea. Christ is the founder of the church. And the way we understand the church is to look at these analogies. Bride, body, building, household. And all of those describe the corporate nature of this thing we call church. Let's pray.